almost every man from that room, probably about 20 men came out and just, we all hugged. And so many of them opened up about sexual abuse for the first time. It is so wonderful to have you all at the table today. My guest today is a good friend and someone who I have my fair share of agreements with and my fair share of disagreements with, a lot of which you're going to hear. Lewis Howes is a New York Times bestselling author of his hit book, The School of Greatness, and his newest book, The Mask of Masculinity. He's a lifestyle entrepreneur, a high-performance business coach, and a keynote speaker. He's a former professional football player and two-sport All-American, and is a current USA men's national handball team athlete. He hosts a top 100 iTunes-ranked Apple podcast, The School of Greatness. Now, in our conversation today, you're going to hear so much about Lewis's own life story, what really inspired his books, The School of Greatness and The Mask of Masculinity, and what really drove him to change his life and to seek a different way of leadership, of transformation, and really looking at his own agency as a leader. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, Him and I have you know, always, I've always enjoyed speaking with Lewis. um, And I hope you enjoy listening. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Urabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine, where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Now, when I had first told people that I listened to your podcast while cooking dinner, they were like, yeah, but doesn't he just talk about like sports or something? (laughs) How often do you get that? Um, You know, I I think, I don't know if I get actually talking about sports a lot. I, I, I'm an athlete, so I try to bring it up when I can, and I try to interview athletes, but I'm so interested in human behavior and love and intimacy, why we think, why we hold on to resentment, pain, how to heal our traumas. I'm so fascinated by what makes us better human beings. I just use sports because that's what I grew up playing, and that's what I know the best, and I can speak in those terms, but... Um, the goal is to, for me, I've always tried to be different than what everyone puts me into some type of box or some type of category. So I try to do things that people wouldn't expect me to do and, um, and kind of shock people or, or make them say, Oh, that's interesting that this white American jock football guy is talking about ending sex slavery for kids or talking about, how to heal your heart or talking about intimacy and how men can be more vulnerable. 
I think it's, um, you know, I grew up with two older sisters. They would call me the sensitive jock growing up because I would go, you know, smash people's faces in in the football game on the weekends, then come back, sing in choir, play the guitar, sing lullabies. And uh, I had kind of that was both sides of me. So. So it was actually, I think I've, I've had this conversation, I believe, with you, and I have it all the time with people when they ask me, so what kind of experience was it? And I, I reflect on it a lot saying, you know, I was actually surprised. I, I entered the conversation with my own biases, and I was mm-hmm. like, this is going to be like a copy-paste question from Google. And it wasn't. Like, you were so incredibly, I think, prepared to have a difficult conversation. And I do want to ask you, because I know so many, you know, I'm new to this. This is the first time I've ever done podcasting, and I'm having these incredible conversations with people. But you've done, like, 900 episodes. So what have you learned? Yeah. Like, yeah, what have, what's been that thing that has stood out to you? Um, yeah, we're almost at a thousand episodes in seven and a half years. It's crazy to think about it because I just started it with an idea of like, I want to do one episode and try to impact one person's life. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because if we're going to be addicted to anything, we might as well be addicted to service. We're all addicted to something and it might as well be put to a good use. So I'm addicted to helping people improve and grow and learn something new as well as for myself wanting to learn and improve because I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. There's so many great people like yourself, I get to learn from. And the biggest things that I've learned is that I really don't know that much. And my, you know, it's interesting, the challenge with interviewing so many brilliant people is you're constantly questioning your own beliefs, your own thoughts about you, how you view the world, because so many people I respect might have a similar thought, but they might have a different thought. And I'm like, huh, that's something to think about. Mm -hmm. And usually it's hard if we have a set of values that we live by. We have a mission and a set of values we live by. And sometimes I'm like, okay, well, what about this thing? And should I be pushing the boundary and questioning everything all the time? Or should I just block everything out and live a simple life where this is how it is and no one else's opinion matters? You just don't strike me as the type. I know, right? But I feel like (laughs) so many people, so many people are set in their ways from how they were grown up based on usually parents, family values, religious values, societal values, and they are set in their ways. Like, this is the way. This is how I was taught for 20, 30 years. This is what my family believes in. This is what our country believes in. So what are some of the ways that you were set in? If we go back, you know, years and we start talking about the way that you were raised, what are some of the ways that you were set in? And what have been kind of the biggest shifts, the biggest mental shifts, the biggest emotional shifts, the things that have really kind of blown your own kind of, um, it's interesting. I grew up in a, uh, a very, I would say, powerful uh, religion called Christian science, where my father was very extreme in his beliefs about the religion. And the religion of Christian science is a Christian religion. You read the Bible, but you also have another book that you read that was written by a woman back in the 1800s named Mary Baker Eddy. She was a very sick woman all the time. And she was trying to figure out, how do I heal myself? Medicine is not healing me. How do I find the root cause to find peace in my body and my mind and my heart? And my father was an extreme Christian scientist in the fact that he wouldn't take medicine under pain. He wouldn't, if he had to get a, a, a 
you know, a cavity fill. He wouldn't fill a cavity. He wouldn't, he had a hernia for, I don't know, 40 years of his life and he didn't get it fixed. Like he wouldn't do surgery, nothing. He wouldn't take an Advil. He was so committed to uh, the metaphysics of the mind, of how powerful the mind can be to heal the body and how we are just an idea. We're just a thought and nothing can be harmed in the kingdom of God. So if we are an idea, then we can't be physically harmed. So I grew up with this belief. Then as I got older, I was like, man, but I broke three ribs and I broke my wrist. And I'm like, I feel pain. I feel like I've got to set these things. I had to wear a cast. I, you know, I got the chicken pox when I was a kid because I didn't get any vaccinations as a child. Yeah. I was like that kid when I went to school that had a letter signed by the church. It was like, no, he doesn't have to get vaccinations. Wow. It was just a different upbringing. And, and I went through a period of like, you know what? No, I'm going to take medicine. I'm going to do these things to like make sure I don't hurt myself and be smart about it and use common sense. And now I'm getting back to interviewing people like Dr. Joe Dispenza and other uh, spiritual leaders in India and gurus. And I'm like, huh. They're saying all the things that I learned in these books growing up about Christian science. It's almost verbatim, the words they're using from the language I was taught as a kid and the beliefs. And I question, uh, you know, I was very, very sure that there was a God growing up. I was like 100% there's a God. Then I went to India and studied meditation for many weeks, and I just questioned it. I'm not saying I don't believe there's a God. I just was like, you know, I could go down the rabbit hole here. And so I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a struggle sometimes because I might go back and forth with beliefs, which can be confusing at times. Yeah. And sometimes I'm like, oh, it'd be a much easier life if I was just like, this is the way things are. And I'm not going to question it, even if it doesn't make sense. I'm just going to believe it. But yeah, I'm just too curious of a cat to, uh, to stay true to like one belief. But I think there are some core things that I'm always going to be sticking to, which is, living a life of service, constantly focusing on my health and my emotional and mental well-being as a staple of my life. Because if I don't have energy, I can't serve other people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just focusing on the principles of happiness, which is gratitude, which is service, which is exercise, having quality relationships, and having a higher purpose for my life. And I think without a purpose, it's very stressful. It's very... Yeah. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. There's already enough stress and anxiety with a purpose, um, but without, it's a lot more challenging. Oh, I hear you. So did you learn that kind of the, the need to be of service and to have a purpose? Was that taught to you by your parents growing up or was that something that you learned? Like, where was the journey? Because when I hear, when you talk about, you know, your your journey, a pro athlete, you know, living on a sister's couch, all of these little details. I do wonder when, when did you get imbued with the sense of like, I need to give back? My, my dad was a great example of, uh, he wanted to have 10 kids. My mom almost went crazy after me. I was the fourth. I'm the youngest of four. And she, you know, she was like, I'm done. She have had a procedure to make sure that the, she had no more kids. <laughs> and uh, my dad was really upset and, and saddened by it from what I, my mom tells me about the story. He was crying. He was upset. He was angry. He was frustrated because he wanted to have 10 kids. And um, my mom almost, almost drove her nuts. But my dad, what he did when I was five, he started essentially adopting kids for six months at a time. He, we 
he was a part of a rotary exchange. And so he had rotary exchange students come from all over the world. So as a five-year-old, I had a, a 17 year old Brazilian older brother who barely knew English. And I remember the day he got there, he put his room up with the Brazilian flag and soccer posters and all these things. And he, uh, you know, it allowed me to go visit Brazil from being in a small town in Ohio where I'd never traveled. Mm -hmm. Then the next year we had someone from France. Then we had someone the next year from Japan. Then we had someone from Germany, the Philippines. So I had seven different exchange students live with me within a five to six year period. And I got to see my dad just say, hey, I want to give to this person. I'm not, you know, I'm paying for their food. I'm letting them stay here for free. I just want to help contribute to them. He also was just very active in like the local community. I was in a small town, Delaware, Ohio. He would clean up the rivers on the weekend. He would take us to go plant trees at the local campgrounds. And I didn't like doing those things as a kid. I was like, I just want to go play sports and hang out and play video games. But I, it, it was just a model that I saw. And I think in my later 20s, I got back to that place. Mm -hmm. In my teens and early 20s, it was about me, me, me. All my goals, all my things. I want people to look at me, to acknowledge me. Mm -hmm. And it was the root of a lot of suffering and a lot of pain because all they focused on was me. And I was the problem. As opposed to saying, okay, how can I focus outward? How can I give and contribute? So what was the tipping point that made you realize, like, wait a second, I need um, to when I, was, when I was 30, I had, well, when I was probably 20, 29, I'd moved to LA for a girl that I was dating. And I was living in New York City at the time, and I was having an incredible time living it up in New York City. I felt like I was learning so much. I was exploring. I was building my business at the time. And then I, I fell for this girl that had just moved to LA right when we started dating. And after about six to seven months of us dating long distance, she was like, okay, I really want you to be in LA. And I was like, I don't know if I should do this. Like we can just do long distance. But I was like, you know what? I'm digging this girl. Let me give it a shot. Like I can, I can move anywhere. I've got like a laptop lifestyle and working from home type of thing. <laughs> so I can always go visit New York. So I come to LA. The day I get to LA, I have no lease. I have two backpacks. Or excuse me, I have two suitcases a guitar and a laptop, and I'm coming to an Airbnb for a month to try to look for a place. She breaks up with me the day I get there, oh, wow. which was like, she sabotaged it. She was, she wanted it, but then she was afraid. We get back together, you know, a couple of days later, probably like any crazy relationship would do. We, but it's an emotional roller coaster for the next six months to a year. And I'm frustrated. I'm resentful. I'm like, I'm, I'm here. I'm trying to make this relationship work. You're trying to sabotage it. You're afraid of, you know, something good in your life. And it's just up and down. Every day it's great and then it's bad. And it was almost like everything in my life started to feel that way. My business partnership that I was in was up and down every single day. Um, and I started to go play basketball a lot. I started to play pick up basketball games here in Los Angeles outside because I was just frustrated. I was frustrated in the relationships that I was in. I was frustrated with what's happening in my business and my girlfriend. And I was like, I just need to get my a frustration out. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take it out on someone, but I'm going to take it out on sports. Mm -hmm. And I would go to the courts and play basketball. And for whatever reason, any little thing would trigger me. Anything that someone would say if they gave me a bad foul, if anyone was taking advantage of me that I felt, mm 
it, it was like I didn't know how to control my reactions. And one day I reacted and got into a fist fight on the basketball court when I was about 30 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, the, the police station is literally right across the street. And I'm thinking to myself, what, am, what have I done? I'm getting into a fight in the middle of a basketball game that means nothing. We're just here to have fun. And I'm reacting to an argument that we're getting in. Now, I justified the fight because the guy hit me first. And I was like, okay, well, now I can react. But it, looking back at it, I'm like, this is the dumbest thing to even get it to that place where I was being aggressive. And I remember running back to my place after this fight, like just shaking and trembling. I'm like, I haven't gotten in a fight since I was 13 or something. And I'm a 30-year-old grown man. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? I'm looking myself in the mirror. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you? And I stare at myself for probably a good 20, 30 minutes shaking. And I just don't recognize myself. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I stand for. I don't know what, why I'm reacting. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of lost. I was like, huh, I've accomplished so many things in my 20s and late 20s in business and sports. You know, on the outside looking in, it looked like I had everything figured out. I had this beautiful girlfriend. I had money. I had success, you know, all press, all that stuff. But I was just so unfulfilled mm -hmm. and so lonely inside. And I, my friend who was there at the basketball court, he said afterwards, he's like, I, I don't want to play basketball with you. And I don't know if I want to hang out with you anymore. And it was a big wake up call. Cause this is my college football teammate and guy I've known for 10 years. It was a good friend of mine. And I was like, wow, if my best friend doesn't want to hang out with me. My relationships are all over the place. Like I got to do some work. The common denominator here is me. Yeah. So I started reaching out to therapists. I started going to emotional intelligence workshops, I started, I was like, okay, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to figure out what's wrong with me. I don't know what is wrong with me. I feel like everything's fine, but I'm going to check this out. My ego is so big. And I went to an emotional intelligence workshop. And after a few days of this workshop, I got to a point where I felt like I needed to share something. And I stood up in front of the room after a lot of people had shared for a few days about stuff that was going on from their past or relationships or pain they'd been through. And I finally was like, I think I need to share this. And I stood up and for the first time in 25 years, I told a group of people that I was sexually abused as a kid. And it was the scariest thing I'd ever done in my life. It was the, I, I thought I would never tell anyone um, because what about I was, that? What about that space in that group of people made you feel safe enough to tell them? We, we were just, people were sharing, you know, a lot. They were sharing the craziest stuff from the past. They were sharing about loss. They were sharing about just a lot of vulnerable things that they were going through. Yeah. And we had done a number of exercises to kind of revisit the past and address the past. And we were at a, a turning point in the workshop after the three or four day mark where the facilitator was like, okay, we have addressed everything from your past because you can't move forward in peace until you let go of the past, until you forgive someone or let forgive yourself or address it or just share it. You know, you don't have to share it publicly, but even just acknowledging yourself. Yeah. Acknowledge that it happened. That it Acknowledge that it happened. Yeah. That it holds and, and some it, power over you. Yeah. If you're triggered in life, then something has power over you. Uh, you're, you're essentially a slave to that emotion still, if it's crippling you to take action in a loving way. And so 
he said, now we're going to be moving into creating a vision for your future. And then the rest of the workshop is going to be about what you want to create, who you want to be. And, but we can't move forward until you've gone through everything in the past. So if anyone has anything to share that you haven't yeah, shared yet, now's the time. Otherwise, like, it's not going to work for you. And I was thinking to myself, okay, okay I, I've already talked about my parents going through a divorce and them kind of fighting a lot of my childhood. And that was challenging for me. I talked about my brother went to prison for four and a half years when I was eight years old for selling drugs to an undercover cop. And I didn't have friends during that time, which was very challenging for me because it was a small town and the neighborhood parents wouldn't let their kids hang out with me because my older brother, I, you know, breakups of girlfriends in the past, heartache, all these things. I was like, I've talked about all these things, but then this flash in my mind, which was a story and a movie that I'd see in my mind every day for 25 years came up and I was like, huh, why have I never shared this thing? Like what, what is it about me? That's afraid to share this. Yeah. And I just thought like, if I don't share this now, I'll probably never share it with anyone and no one will ever truly know who I am. And I'll always be a fake and a phony and inauthentic. And so I stood up, I shared the entire story for the first time. And I was, I was terrified. And when I came and sat down afterwards, it was like decades of emotion erupted from me. And I couldn't stop crying. I was just bawling. And I remember there was two women on each side of me sitting next to me. They were bawling. They're hugging me. We're crying together. And I was just like, I can't be here. I need to get out. Like these, I feel humiliated. I feel shameful. So I ran out of this room. And about five minutes later, was probably one of the most beautiful things that ever happened to me. I'm, I'm outside of this kind of conference room. I go outside of the, the, it was in a hotel conference room. I go outside of the hotel and I find a wall to put my head on kind of next to this hotel uh, alleyway. And a few minutes later, I feel a tap on my back, my shoulder. And it was a man who turns me around, who gives me a big hug, looks me in the eyes and he says, you're my hero. When I was seven, this happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I have three kids and I've been married for 25 years. My wife and kids don't know. You've given me the courage to finally address this. And then almost every man from that room, probably about 20 men came out and just, we all hugged. And so many of them opened up about sexual abuse for the first time. And that's when I, I'm getting the chills just thinking about it. And that's when I realized, I was like, wow, I've never heard people talk about sexual abuse as a man. Yeah. I'd never seen it in the media being talked about. I never saw people that looked like me, athletes, open talking up and it. yeah, talking about it. I was just like, yeah. like hearing you tell this story. It's I think for a lot of people, it'd be even difficult to imagine, right? Like this outpouring of just recognition, support. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have two questions for you because yeah. I'm, I'm in that alley with you, and I'm thinking first. Were you so terrified because you hadn't seen that before? Like, what, what about society has, had at that point told you, like, this is not something you talk about? Well, I mean, or growing up as a kid, I couldn't even put my arms around, like, my buddies in class or at school without them calling me uh, some name. Little girl, don't be a wuss, don't be a fag, whatever the name was to make me feel wrong or less than or bad. Mm -hmm. And so I was a very affectionate kid and I'm still very affectionate. I like to put my arm around my friends. I like to hug people, high five. And I remember I just want to like put my arm around like a teammate and they'd be like, get off me. Don't be, you know, that was the way of 
the Midwest, at least kind of mentality, unless you were conditioned and trained in a different way mm-hmm. of to be tough, to, you know, to not show emotion, to not show affection, especially with another, you know, young man, young boy. And that was really harmful for me because I just wanted to be like an affectionate kid that, that loved other people and was, you know, happy to be around my friends. So I had to kind of put on these masks, this armor to say, okay, in order to survive and fit in and belong to a group of friends at a school and them not pick on me or not bully me or not push me away, I need to fit in in some way. And I need to play the role that makes them like me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to do that, but that was kind of a survival mechanism so I could at least have some friends and not be alone all the time. And um, that, that aggressive mentality just became more of a normal type of reaction for me, especially because yeah. I played football. I was like, you were trained to it's essentially destroy people. For yeah. three hours a day, you're trained to hit as hard as you can to inflict as much pain as possible so the other person doesn't want to get up so you can win the game. And so not making any excuses here, but when young boys are trained for years to do this and then all of a sudden flip the switch five minutes later after they take their pads off and be like this loving, affectionate, non-aggressive ever person, it's hard to, it's hard to train someone to like be able to, you're like, Bipolar, I guess, yeah, if you do that. So it's like you need to be in a mentality of aggression and domination in order in that type of sport and in any type of sport like that. Um, so, so it's it's just time, a it's challenging. Was that time in the alley the first time you kind of took off that mask? Yeah, I would say it's the first time. I, it was the first time I revealed myself mm-hmm. fully because I was so ashamed of what had happened when I was five, and. I continue to tell a story to myself. If anyone truly knew what I'd been through or who I truly am, no one would love me. No one would want to be my friends. I wouldn't have a business. You know, my family would disown me. It was a story that I made up in my mind. I was just like, if anyone ever knew who I truly was, no one in their world would love someone like me. And it was a fear. It was a fear. To Has that fear changed? Yeah, because I didn't love myself, and now I fully love myself, and I don't need people's approval mm-hmm. to love myself and to be kind to myself. And so to, how, did you, how did you get there from that? Take us from that moment in the alley where you're being embraced by all these men who are yeah. telling you, like, this has happened to me. Thank you for, thank mm-hmm. you for speaking this. Yep. Thank you for opening this conversation for us to a point where – you can essentially kind of recondition yourself to, to loving yourself, to recognizing mm-hmm. that this wasn't your fault. Like what, what is the process there? Because it doesn't, it sounds easy. It wasn't easy. I'm it was sure not I'm- easy. I, uh, I mean, I finished the workshop the next couple of days and I dove in deeper and, and I just allowed myself to open up. It was a safe environment where everyone was kind of opening up. So we were all naked in a sense, emotionally, And I was like, okay, I can trust these people because they've accepted me for who I am. So let me share a little more. And that, that safe experience allowed me to be completely vulnerable Mm -hmm. and, and and start the acknowledgement process, start a healing process. And I remember afterwards I was like, okay, this feels great to like kind of share my shame and get this like out. So it's not 
a disease in my body holding me back. But this is 25 years of conditioning, and mm -hmm. this is probably going to take a little bit of time. And I remember thinking to myself, ah, uh, like, I think I'm good. Like, I shared it, so hopefully I'm good. But then I remember saying, like, ah, my family doesn't know. <sighs> I'm not being authentic to my family. Yeah. They don't know who I am. They don't know their son or their brother. So I was like, okay, that next week I made a commitment to myself. I'm going to call each family member and I'm going to tell them. And I was terrified. I didn't know. It's like these strangers could accept me. They didn't know who I was. They, you know, they're sharing, we're sharing. They can accept me, but my family, are they going to accept me when they know this? Yeah. I don't know. They might disown me or something. This is a story. And I remember I called a therapist friend and I said, uh, this happened. And I don't know how to address this with my family. Can you give me some feedback? And she said, <clears throat> make sure you ask this question with each one of them. Ask them the question, is there anything I could ever say or do that would make you not love me? Mm -hmm. And that question, she was like, based on how they react, then you can either share or not share in that moment and wait until a later time. And I remember I asked, I asked my brother first, the one who went to prison and he had a lot of shame after he got out of prison. He got out on good behavior. He transformed his life. He's gone on to do incredible things, but he had a lot of shame um, after he got out around the family for himself. And I asked him this question and it was like, I couldn't even finish the sentence. He was like, absolutely not. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm always going to love you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I guess he has to, right? He's got a lot of shame. And, um, it was the strangest thing. I asked each one of my sisters, my brother, my, my, my family. I told them. <clears throat> and it was like, because I was willing to open up in this vulnerable way, it was sad for all of them. And it was painful. And it was hard, especially for my mom, because it was the babysitter's son who, who oh, did wow. this. And she took me to the babysitters after school, all these things. So she had a lot of guilt. But they were so loving and they – it also created a deeper relationship with each one of them because they opened up about things that I had never known about them from their childhood or their challenges or stresses. And we instantly created a deeper connection than us playing like everything's okay, brother, sister type of relationship. Yeah. And I res and it's like a deeper respect, a deeper love, a deeper appreciation. And then I said, okay, I'm good. But then I was like, oh, my friends don't know. And I remember I was like, gosh, this brings back my childhood of like not having friends and I've worked so hard over the years to like develop relationships, but they got to disown me. And I just went one by one and I asked them the same question. Is there anything I can ever do or say to make you not like me or love me or want to hang out with me? They're like, no. And I told all of them, my closest friends. And I was like, okay, I've done the work. And I was like, ah, but my audience and the world doesn't know. And am I, you know, if I'm building a platform, about health and wellness and healing and vulnerability and I'm not being fully authentic. And I was like, this is going to be a scary one. And this is about six, six months into me launching my podcast. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I don't know how to say this. I don't know what to say because I'm still not educated about sexual abuse. I don't want to say the wrong things. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want this to be a marketing thing. But I was like, I feel a responsibility to share. And so I had a friend kind of interview me and, and set it up. And it's been one of the most downloaded episodes I've ever done. I'm almost a thousand episodes. And then I was like, I still don't feel like it's done after I shared this publicly. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went on a few year journey of saying, 
because after that episode, hundreds of emails came through of men opening up to me for the first time. And it was like this emotional hangover I was feeling. For weeks, men were sending me essays about their experiences. It yeah. made mine look like <clears throat> nothing compared to what I was reading. And I was just like, wow, men don't have a safe space in general in our society that I'm aware of. Maybe some do, but in general, they don't have a safe space to share their shame, share their pain, share their trauma without being made fun of, yep. told to suck it up, told to don't be a wuss, don't be a girl, kind of the way I was growing up. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I don't blame these kids because that's how they were conditioned from society and, and whatever. So I'm not mad at them. It's just the way things were. And I was like, wow. This was also around the time of three, four years ago when like, and it was just seemed rough in the world. It's rougher now in the world, but it was like Charlottesville was happening with all these men marching at torches, like just a lot of racism happening back there as well. It was a lot of like the Vegas shootings and all these different shootings were happening in gay bars. And I was just like, man, I started to see the sequence of events over a year that all the bad things that seemed to be happening in the world were happening by the hands or hands of angry men. Yeah. And as I started to look at these men's photos and watch videos of them, I was just like, you know, not making an excuse for anyone because what they did was absolutely wrong and they needed to be taken accountable for. But I was like, man, I could see myself going down that path maybe in 10, 20 years if I didn't have good relationships, if I wasn't able to share, if I didn't create healthy habits, mm -hmm. if I felt always I was like under attack emotionally and I felt like a disease boiling up in my, in my heart. And I was just like, this is, men don't have a place to share. And exactly. I'm not saying it's okay for men to react in these ways. It's not okay. It's not acceptable. But I was like, there's gotta be a way to shift the narrative for men to share. They don't need to share publicly. They don't need to you know, do what I do and publicly talk about these things, but they need to find one person they can share with, a, a priest, a therapist, a counselor, a friend. And then as I started going down this, the, and researching more, one in six uh, men have been sexually abused. Yeah. And one, it's one in four in women, so obviously women have it worse. But as I was doing my, and cut me off if I'm rambling here, but if I was, as I was doing a, my tour talking about my book a few years ago, the rooms were usually full with a few hundred women and a few hundred men. Mm -hmm. And I would ask the women, raise your hands, ladies, if once a week you get together with a girlfriend or a family member of yours and you talk about your insecurities, your fears, your marriage issues, your friendship challenges, your body insecurities, and you talk about these things. And almost every female would raise their hand and say yes once a week. And I go, keep your hand up if you do this every single day. You're on the phone with your mom, your sisters, your girlfriends, you go for tea, and most of them keep their hand up. And I go, okay, for the men in the room, put your hand up if once a month you get together with a group of guys and you talk about your fears, your insecurities, your, your self-doubt, your body challenges, your, whatever it may be. And maybe two or three out of hundreds would raise their hand. And I would say, are you part of like a, a men's church group that's like this required thing to go to or heavily pressured thing to go to once a month? And most of them are like, yes. And I say, okay, so ladies, you know, just imagine, I'm not saying anything's right or wrong here, but just imagine that you didn't talk for one month with a girlfriend of yours about what you were going through. How would that feel? 
Just imagine one year you never shared any of your pain or frustration. How would that make you feel? Imagine going decades in your whole life, never sharing how to make you feel. And most of them are like, I'd go crazy. You know, it would, I would go crazy. And again, I'm not saying what any action these men have done to cause harm in the world is okay. It's not. But I'm just trying to, I can see from the other side now, like, if you don't learn to heal, bad things are going to happen. And we need to create a space for men to be able to heal. And to have a lot of these conversations. Yeah. I, hear you. I, I completely hear you. I do think we're all beginning to really recognize and see that a lot of what's happening in the world is symptoms of bigger problems, yeah. right? And, and so the way in which a lot of men choose to behave, again, need to be held accountable, but is a symptom of a, a larger problem in terms of yes. the way we talk about men and yes. the way we talk about masculinity. And mm -hmm. a lot of the, the boundaries, whether they're explicitly stated or just subtly noted that, mm -hmm. that boys are raised with, right? A, a good friend of mine, Liz Plank, who, who is appearing um, on this season as well, wrote For the Love of Men. And it's yeah. Incredible book, um, and I actually, you know, whenever anybody asks me about um, a conversation on, you know, masculinity and, and how we need to raise, you know, boys in, in the world today to actually be able to express their emotions and have these conversations, I always recommend both your books. I say this is one, you know, you need to read both these different perspectives. Sure. But she shared an article recently about how men find it emasculating to wear a mask during coronavirus. Mm. And they don't, they just don't feel like they need to. Um, and the title it makes them feel weak. Right. And so I, I have to ask you that question though, because you've done this work, you've had conversations with hundreds, if not thousands of men uh -huh. and you've, and you've written this book. I mean, and I can only imagine some of the things that people have come up to you and said, this happened to me. I've experienced yeah. this. What is the solution? Like at what point do we say, okay, like what do we <laughs> need to do differently? Come on, give it to me, Lewis. Tell the, solu me. the solution yeah. is, I mean, there's, I'm still trying to find a solution, but. But what are the questions we need to be asking? What are the conversations we need to be having? It, st it starts with, um, I just feel like as a society in general, both men and women hold men to a standard that is unrealistic. And the same is true for women. Both men and women hold women to a standard that is unrealistic. That you've got to be perfect uh, mom, a perfect wife, a, uh, a perfect in your career. You've got to be driven here, but you need to be sensitive in the bedroom. And it, you need to be a perfect, like all these things. And you need to be able to cook perfectly. And the standards are so unrealistic for both men and women. And uh, we need to be aware that we're all just children. Uh, in old children that have a lot of fears and insecurities. And if we never address them, we're always going to act out in certain ways. And the older we get, we have more ways to act out in that are harmful and more destructive. We have more ability and access to power and things like that to hurt people. And I really feel like we just need to work on first ourselves of doing the work to heal ourselves of our past, because it's hard to create a meaningful, beautiful future and present if you're holding on to past pain. And what I did was I masked it by focusing on my athletics, by accomplishments, by making money, by trying to look good, by trying to date a bunch of women. Like I was like trying to validate in other ways to feel loved, to not feel alone. But I was more alone than ever with a lot of cool toys around, right? And so I, I had to come to a place where like, Material things do not matter to me. They don't, 
they don't add value to my life in the sense of increase my Mm self-worth. My self-worth needs to shift into doing what I say I'm going to do every day for myself, into being kind to people, into being uh, a giver in humanity, into finding ways to contribute, finding ways to spread awareness about things, because that's what I love to do. And it was finding out different ways to fulfill myself that were meaningful and healthy instead of unhealthy. And I think a lot of men have just not learned the tools and the skill set on how to heal unless we go through a massive breakdown, a near-death experience, a health scare, a divorce, where, or a career loss, where we are forced to look in the mirror and say, something bad just happened, catastrophic in my life. Why? And most of us will never change until that moment happens. Unfortunately, we just don't change when things are good. We don't change when things are bad. We change when things are extraordinarily shocking. Yeah, it's like, that's why it's so hard to go from good to great because like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, making a hundred grand a year. I've got my wife and my kids. Like, uh, I should be grateful for this, but it's not, it's that 20% of like, yeah, but are you living to your, what you want to live? Are you doing the things that light you up? Are you just going along with things? So, Lewis, I think one of the, the questions that kind of sits at the top of my brain as I hear you is, how about if you don't necessarily have that environment where you can go to your, how about if you don't have family that you can go to and say, hey, will you still love me anyways? Very how about hard. if you have friends? How about, like, how about if you exist in a space and you live in a community where you have to keep the mask on to stay alive? To I know. I was, your I was talking with someone uh, who lives in my building because um, I my girlfriend I don't know how this came up, but I was like, you can't, I was like, you can't be gay in Russia. They'll, they'll kill you or they'll, you know, they'll do bad things to you if you're gay. And she was like, no way. And literally someone from our building who I know is Russian walks by and I go, Hey, can I ask you a quick question? Like you're from Russia. You've lived there for a long time. Is this true? You can't be gay. She's like, yeah, we just don't acknowledge that people are gay. And I go, what will happen? She's like, you just, you just can't do it. Otherwise, they'll kick you out of the country. Like, just bad things happen to you. And so I can only imagine the fear or pain that is, is bottled up inside when you don't have a safe space to talk about it, whether it be your religion or your f- parents or your country or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think luckily for us today, we have social media, which there's hotlines, there's social media emails, there's outlets, there's people you can connect to who you could try to create a safe space with and try to learn and, and do that. There's a lot of hotlines for these different places for, for sexual trauma or for any type of abuse you can call. Um, it's not easy. I think it's this, this is the struggle you're going to have to deal with. It's already hard enough to tell someone in a safe environment, let alone. And have to create and cultivate that safe exactly. environment. Exactly. I had 25 years. I didn't feel safe, even though, okay, I just didn't see anyone, t- uh, tall, white, jock athletes talking about it. So I didn't feel like I was allowed to even though you know, there's hotlines that I later found out about, I didn't know where they were. And I think um, you got to get creative. You've got to be creative and you got to be smart about it. And it may not make sense to tell your parents at first. And I think finding a, a spiritual leader, hiring a counselor, there's lots of therapy apps that you can call someone confidentially now. I think Talkspace is one where you can call someone confidentially and talk about things. Uh, there's lots of places online where you could call and do that. I also love the power of writing a letter to myself. 
I did this many times after this point. I wrote letters to myself. I wrote letters to the man who sexually abused me. I wrote letter to my younger self. I wrote letter to myself now. And I didn't send them to anyone. I just wrote them for myself to acknowledge and get it out onto paper. Process that. Yeah. Process it. And I would create rituals for myself, ceremonies. I would write the letters. I would light them on fire. I would bury them in the earth. I would do you know, weird stuff, but I was like, I got to try everything mm-hmm. to get this out of me because it's 25 years of pain that's sticking to my heart. I got to do it all. And, I, and, I, and it took probably three, four years of me talking about it consistently until I was able to share it like I'm having a cup of coffee with a friend talking about you know, whatever. Yeah. Because I always would like tremble, my heart would flutter, I would stutter. Fear. Yeah, I was like terrified. And so I was like, okay, this has power over me still. Until I can talk about it in a more peaceful way. I'm not saying that what happened to me was okay and it's all good. It's just like, I don't want it to have power over me anymore. I want to have a beautiful life. And so, I, I didn't have that life. What makes you... You know, and, and I've been really following a lot of what you've been doing lately with the School of Greatness, which I think is wonderful because you're really amplifying voices in this mm-hmm. moment of history yeah. um, that oftentimes don't get that platform. They don't get that stage. Um, and, and you've had a lot of, of incredible leaders from the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and, and, and leaders who are doing things like share the mic and yep. talk about, you know, the world as it is today for them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have to ask you this question about privilege because you're somebody who has created this platform. You're now extending this platform and saying, I want to spotlight these conversations that are so much bigger than all of us and yeah. these people who are leading this work. But you also, a lot of people identify you as this tall white jock, right? right? And so how have you been able to, <sighs> genuinely, how have you been able to champion things like social justice? Yeah. You leveraged your platform because you clearly have, and I'm sure even some of your listeners might have been surprised. You know what I mean? Like some people who might have been like, "Hey, wait! I never knew he was this passionate about this. I never knew that this was what he was, you know, so excited to talk about." So, what got you there? Because, like you said, you grew up in a small town. You moved to LA. What made you so aware and I think cognizant of the fact that, regardless of how difficult you may have had it, other people had it ten times worse. By nature, yeah. of the color of their skin. Yeah, I never. It's funny because I don't want people to take this the wrong way. I never th- thought I was capable of really doing much after sports. Like, just you know, I felt like I was so disadvantaged growing up, and that may seem like crazy to hear, but it's because I was in special needs classes from five years old. I, they almost held me back uh, a couple times in elementary school. Then I, and I was always in those special needs classes where it was me and, you know, kids in wheelchairs. It was like me, the able-bodied person, but the disabled mentally person who couldn't learn, who couldn't read and write. I went to eighth grade. I went to a private boarding school in eighth grade, and I had to go through all this testing, and they gave me a second grade reading level. And they were like, you have to do extra classes every day to just get reading up to par so you can graduate high school. My mm-hmm. senior year in high school, I almost flunked out. I was always in the bottom four of my class all through high school. It took me seven years to finish college. So even though I'm a white man, I felt personally like everyone in the world is smarter than me. And it was like this, I was constantly beating myself up emotionally. Like I'm never going to be smart. No one's ever going to listen to me. Like I have no skills. 
who's going to pay me anything. I'm not an entrepreneur. I had these thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I realized that I'm a white man and I never had to deal with racism growing up. I never had to deal with the prejudices growing up. But I also knew that I was battling my whole life that he's a white man, he's a dumb jock, and he's never going to amount to anything beyond sports. So I had other things that I was constantly trying to battle to showcase that I wasn't this stereotype Mm -hmm. that everyone was trying to put me in. And as I moved out, as I started to go through this healing journey in LA seven and a half years ago, and I started to just get connected. I was like, I don't want to interview just athletes and just white dudes. I want to interview people that make me interested in in different ideas. I want to interview singers. I want to interview thought leaders. I want to interview spiritual leaders, scientists, doctors, you know, um, you know, I had this guy on last week for, uh, the, the global sex trafficking awareness. And, um, you know, I'm curious about these things. And I, I'm just like, I'm just curious because I want to know more because I've always felt like the dumbest person in school because quite frankly, based on results and grade cards, I was. And so I was like, I need to learn constantly. And so, and I've always been surrounded by different cultures because my dad brought those cultures in. They yeah. brought the world. I was like a global citizen without leaving Delaware, Ohio. And so I got to experience and hear what's happening in other countries from five till 13 when I left uh, to school. And I also played on sports teams. And the higher you go up in the level of college sports and professional sports, you become, as a white guy, more of the minority on sports teams than football. You know, I think there are, I think there are more black people playing professional football than the white people, I think. I don't know the statistic. But in my team that I played for in Alabama in Arena Football League, I was one of like six or seven white guys and the rest were all black guys. And did you have conversations about racism? With- I did. Yeah. I mean, I was always, I was always trying to be accepted, you know, by the black community. I was like, these are my brothers. These are my friends. These are, I, I'm around them all day long. We practice. And then we literally sit around and just like talk, play video games. We didn't have any money then we're making $250 a week, but uh, you know, I had a black roommate from North Carolina and, and I was just like, and all through college, I have black friends and teammates, and I'm learning the culture. I'm, you know, we're on bus rides, 15-hour bus rides with 20 guys in a, in a massive bus with beds, bunk beds on top of each other. And I'm listening to all their music. I'm hearing all their stories. I'm hearing about everything that they went through growing up. I'm, and I'm in shock because yeah. I'm like, wow, I didn't have to go through this. And I'm also seeing them get, you know, pulled over and harassed where I can feel comfortable just like going up and saying hi to the cops and being like, hey, what's going on? You know, can you guys give me directions? Because I always did that. Yeah. And I realized they couldn't as much unless they had some type of relationship. I could sense a type of like fear or worry around that. And so I was just very aware that that's happened. And I was privileged in the fact that I never got harassed by the police growing Mm -hmm. up. Um, so by being white, I never had that, that distress about, I had other things to stress about, but not this. And so I realized that this is a massive issue in our society. And even though I didn't experience it, I had a lot of friends who did. And it was very, it's been very sad for me because I've been reaching out to more and more friends of mine that I played football with. And I'm just like, how much did this happen? And they're just telling me crazy stories about then, about now still. So I just felt like 
I have a responsibility to do my best. And I tell my team all the time, like there are so many causes I would love to support in the world. There's so many things we've got poverty. We've got the water issues around the world. We've got, you know, um, education. We build schools all over the world every year. The sex trafficking, it's important for me. It's like, we try to do our best with as many things as possible. We can't solve and spread light on every problem and issue in the world. We just don't have the time and the resources to do it. So we try to pick and choose what, what is most meaningful and humanity is meaningful to me. And I just have a lot of friends that I don't want to see have to suffer and go through this. So I was, and, and also from the beginning, I've just been very diverse in the people I've interviewed on the podcast, the people I've had on my stages at Summit of Greatness from the first Summit of Greatness five years ago. It was, a, you know, I believe it's been 50-50 men, women, people of color from the start. So it's never been the thing of like, oh, I need to have less white people on now. It's like I've always been trying to learn. You have an incredibly diverse team. I think that's also part of it. Is a diverse team, everything. Yeah. So many For so many of kind of a, a lot of colleagues of mine in, in media spaces right now are like, okay, well, how do we get more black voices? And I'm like, well, have them in the newsroom. Yeah. Have them, have them as your producers. Have them architecting. You, like it's completely artificial to bring them in if you don't listen to them on your own team. And you've, I remember when I went, Tiffany, who was incredible, yep. Um, and, and genuinely one of the people who I follow on Instagram and, and yeah, she's great. so ashamed that I'm not doing like 10 mile run. <laughs> I know every morning she's running every day. Like, yeah, yeah, she's been with me for five years or almost five years. And it's like, I've just been for me. I, and it's not a thing of like, I need to have people of color or not. I, I'm just because my dad put me in this situation of having people from all walks of life, all nationalities all religions live with us i just felt like this is how everyone does it everyone hangs out with people from different countries and different colors and were you surprised that's not actually the fact for a lot of people i mean being in you know a small town it was you know more of a white town it was definitely black people in my school and on my teams but it was predominantly white you know middle class lower class town I just assumed everyone was just like accepting of people. I don't know. Cause my dad just from this earliest memory, one of my earliest memories is having a Brazilian come live with us. It's one of my earliest memories along with being sexually abused. So it's like, I had both the extremes. It's like, okay, accept everyone. And also don't trust anyone at the same time because everyone's out to abuse you. And um, yeah. And I'm sure that I'm, I've made mistakes and I have a long thing, a lot to still learn, but it's like a, I just never saw it as like, oh, it's us versus them, or I'm only going to hang out with white people. I just never thought about that. It was ingrained in me at an early age to be open to all cultures, to accept people, and to um, see people as equals. So uh, I'm just trying to do the best I can. But I also realized that not everyone knows this about me. And people just assume, oh, you're just a white privileged guy who's always had it, you know, everything easy, and you don't know anything about race, and you don't get what we go through. And I'm like, Maybe you're right about a lot of things, but I definitely have a perspective and I'm doing my part and I've been doing it not only for the last three months, like a lot of people are jumping in, but I've been doing it for since the beginning of my show and as an athlete with, with my teammates. So no, I can, I, I will come clean and say it. I, I honestly remember the first time my husband put on your podcast, I was like, what did he, what does he do? And he was like, oh, he was an athlete. And you know, now he does um, the school of greatness. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. 
into that. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I, I still remember listening, and I had listened to um, you and the tennis player uh, Djokovic. Novak, and he yeah. was cried twice in the middle of the interview and talking was, about, and yeah. I, and I was just like, oh, I'll, I'll no, no, I'm, I'll listen to this. Yeah. Before I began to listen to you, and then after, to be quite honest, to you know, meeting you and us having a conversation where I, I was genuinely like, no. I was completely in the wrong. So I will, I will publicly apologize. For that. <laughs> you were a little guarded when we first met. I remember you were very guarded. <laughs> well, I, I also grew up, I grew up in, you know, Canada's Midwest. I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, of which course. is a very white city. But, um, yeah. but and I tried to, and I tried to hug you and all these things. <laughs> like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know what this guy's doing right now. So it was, but it was funny to me because I, very few times, and this, this will sound, um, I hope it doesn't sound wrong, but very few times do I walk away from someone and be like, shit, I got that completely wrong. <laughs> and, and I had kind of been prepared to be proven wrong because I was listening to, to your podcast yeah. and recommending it. But then after sitting with you, I was like, no, no, he actually, like, you do the homework. You you want, I, and it's, I think we all have to do it. I mean, the amount of learning, I think everybody is saying, okay, what have I, I've had a blind spot on racism mm -hmm. in America, or I've had a blind spot on xenophobia, or I've had a blind spot on masculinity and how we raise boys or on sexual violence and what our response is. And I love that what you do is you don't sit there and spew for like a couple of hours about your opinion. No, no, you bring experts, you bring mm -hmm. black people who have experienced it firsthand and you say, okay, so what do we do next? You know, yeah. and I think what I enjoyed most in a lot of your recent interviews, and I do recommend everyone go and listen to them, is because you don't, it's not just, okay, let's talk about race. Let's also talk about what are your hobbies? Mm -hmm. What makes you a whole person? Like, yeah. you're not here to just talk about what's in the headlines, but but you're, you are entitled. You are you are supposed to. It's, it's the human thing to have that full range of emotions and excitement and joy. Sure. Um, so, so I will publicly admit that. <laughs> Very hard. <laughs> it's all good. I feel like I'm constantly, probably just like yourself, you're constantly trying to break down stereotypes from, uh, you know, your background, your religion, your culture, from whatever, being a woman. In, in, always. You're, in, you're always having to break down a stereotype and create connection with people. And you talked about this in your interview, you know, when you go overseas and you're trying to bring peace you've got to find ways to relate to someone who's complete opposite of yeah. you. It's like, let's talk about kids or nephews and nieces. Let's talk about this. Yeah. And I feel like I'm always needing to play that game, which is break down the barrier. So people would just listen for 10 seconds or be, yeah. I'm not even talking, just listen to the questions that I asked someone else and listen to them. I'm just trying to put the spotlight on other people. Um, so it's a, it's a constant battle. And someone might say, oh, boo-hoo, like the white man who's got a constant battle. But it's like we all face a battle of breaking down stereotypes for whatever we come from, how we look, you know, our, our um, educational level, everything. We're constantly trying to break these down so we can create deeper connections with people because the key to success in life is relationships. And the key to successful relationships is being vulnerable and being able to connect and relate. And I, you know, my, my, um, I have a family member who uh, they are now gender nonconforming and they opened up to me and our family a couple of years ago about this. And it's been very hard for them. Um, and as a person that wasn't educated on it at first, I was like, this is confusing, but I want to listen. I want to learn. And it doesn't make sense to me in the moment, but what can I continue to learn and educate myself about where I can make sense of it and I can love you no matter what. Do you think that we have kind of a crisis of mutual like listening and respect? Like what, what do you, 
because every single time, every single time something happens where people are like, okay, you know, this happened in this community, or I hear the talking heads on some cable channels just yell at each other. And I, I genuinely think maybe one of the things we're really missing out on is, and there was a statistic that came out about um, Islamophobia, people who, who, who are opposed to Islam in America, and apparently 75% of them had never met a Muslim. Uh-huh. And right. I do wonder if maybe that's one of the things that we're missing out on. I, I think so. And I, I'm, listen, I got a long way to go and a lot of learn and I make a lot of mistakes all the time, I'm sure. But, you know, I've been to Egypt and I have a teammate who I stayed with in Cairo and he's praying five times a day and he's taking me to the mosque. And I'm, I'm like, I'm just, you, when you're around people who are doing things different than you, you can ask questions and you can be open-minded and you say, okay, why do you do this? And Oh, that's cool. Oh, that, that makes sense. Maybe I should start doing some of this stuff. I think when we close ourselves to a set of beliefs that we've been taught from a young age, uh, that can help us in certain ways and it can hurt us. Like I talked about in the beginning, like I, I continue to try to open my mind to new beliefs and new ideals and new thought processes about the way things should be. And sometimes that can be confusing because I can say, oh, man. I've thought this my whole life or for the last five years, but I kind of agree with this. Like, is there a way I can use it and use, you know, do all these things together? But then am I a wishy-washy person? You know, I'm not set in my way. It's, it can be messy, but I think life is meant to be messy. It's not always supposed to be easy. And we should be constantly seeking to ask more questions. Um, and, and we're going to be, I find more joy in learning. And sometimes I feel like ignorance is bliss, but I also don't want to be set in my ways. And uh, I want to constantly be curious about all races, all religions, all genders. You know, it's like I, 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 was, I was unsure about it, like a like transsexual when I was growing up. I was like, this is weird. Like, who would do this? Because I'm a young boy. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But then you meet someone or you watch a documentary about it and you start to learn. Then it's like, okay, I can see where this is coming from, even though it doesn't make any sense to me and I would never want to do this personally or someone who was gay growing up when I first heard about it for the first time, I was like, huh, you want to like kiss a boy? I was like, even though I would never want to do this, I don't feel the desire, but I can start to appreciate someone's differences as I want them to appreciate me different from them and not judge me because the more we judge, the more we suffer. And so there's... There's people that are doing things that maybe you don't agree with. And as long as they're not causing harm and hurting other people, then it's like, okay, if you can learn to accept it, you're not going to be in as much pain. And you can create a connection with that human being. And you can find ways to come together. And I really try to just be a person that's trying to create connection and bridge the gap of people and ideas to everyday people that maybe don't have that access. And I feel more and more responsible uh, and like a, a mission, a duty to do that to try to ask the dumb questions that most people are afraid to ask because I feel like it's necessary. And I don't, I don't know many white guys who are like former jocks that would have like a Muslim on or, or transsexual on or, you know, or tr transgender or gay person. You know, I just don't know. And I'm not, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of them, but I'm just, I don't you know, know many that would. I think it's very true that we're all kind of in our own bubbles and it's so yeah. important for us to, to extend conversations beyond them if we actually want to see things to change. Yeah. 
um, like kind of the echo chambers of like, yes, you are, you're doing amazing work. You're the best. Like we need to open that up to say like, wait a second, how do I hold privilege? Am I, yeah. am I more space for others? Am I? So I, I think that's so incredibly important. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I get a lot of flack because I don't bring on the same type of person all the time that maybe some of my audience wants me to. Yeah. I bring on different people. I'll bring on, you know, um, I don't know, uh, a transsexual black woman uh, who's a liberal, and then I'll have Ben Shapiro on, and yeah. who, who's more conservative and like really aggressive for some people. And I'm just like, because I want to learn. I'm not saying like one is right or wrong or because I feel like there's some truth to both sides. And I'm like, where can we find the middle ground here? And this is what I love about you is like you go to these different countries and you meet with people that you don't agree with that are doing horrible things in your mind, that are hurting people, that are causing suffering. And yet you've got to find a way to like them somehow to build a connection. Otherwise, he's not gonna, they are not going to trust you. You have to you have to find a way I think to see them as humans. To there everyone is afforded I think dignity and and that's one of the biggest challenges actually I think one of the biggest challenges is people can do incredibly awful things. <laughs> but oftentimes genuinely like awful things and and I think oftentimes we say okay well on principle alone I'm not going to speak to you. On principle alone I'm not going to listen. On principle alone I'm not going to hear you. Um, and the unfortunate reality is they'll continue to do those awful things that'll usually be life and death for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so it's a privilege to say, like, I don't even want to hear about this. It's a privilege to say this doesn't affect me. I'm not going to be political. That's a privilege. So I think yeah. a, a huge amount of courage to say, no, I'm going to get political. I'm going to have conversations about racism. I'm going to have conversations about sexism. I'm going to have conversations about um, otherism. I'm going to have conversations about the political realities in our country. Yeah. Because then you're recognizing that that's a responsibility you have. Not everybody has the privilege to walk away from it. So exactly. I hear you completely. I think, Louis, there's two questions that I've, I've kind of been asking um, uh, every guest. And the first one is, you know, what is one, what's one idea or one thought or one book or one moment or one person um, that if you would, if you could, you would bring to the table, to this community? Uh, that I would share with the community, your community. Yeah. Um, the first thing that came to my mind is, this might sound silly, the, a book called The Alchemist. It's one of my favorite books uh, because I feel like we're just on a journey. We're all on a journey and we need to discover the treasure within us. And a lot of times, um, that's what the book The Alchemist is all about, is finding your your personal you know, legend, your journey and, and, and finding like the gifts inside of you. And I think a lot of us are limit ourselves um, to what we're capable of and we limit ourselves to what we can change and how we can be different and listen differently and, and grow. And we, um, we seek a lot of outside validation as opposed to what's already inside of us. Yeah. So I would say that book is, is one thing. And I would say um, the person, I really like Brene Brown. I think she's uh, really inspiring. I had her on one time and she's doing amazing work in the world. So I would listen to her as well. And then I think just based on what you were talking about earlier about being fearful, what are you still, I mean, you've reached this point where you're having these conversations, you're learning all of these different things. You've created this platform and this space that is welcoming. It is um, open to different perspectives. It's all of, what are you scared of now? Um, 
I don't know if it's a scare thing. It's just like fully accepting that no matter how much good I try to do, people are not going to like me. and People are going to not understand me. People are going to hate on me, judge me. Like even in the middle of, um, you know, just people just don't know what they don't know. And so they make assumptions. I saw two instances. Uh, yesterday, someone left a comment on someone else's post. They tagged me on their post on Instagram and said, I can't believe you're not doing enough to talk about ending child sex slavery. And I wish people like you and Lewis Howes did more. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I messaged this person directly. And I said, did you look at the last three days of my content where all I posted was about ending sex uh, slavery for kids and got over a million views? I was like, did you see this? And they responded like, I'm so sorry. I wasn't even aware. I didn't even look. I just assumed you weren't talking about it. And I'm like, this is just what someone has to deal with. When you, when you put yourself out there, people are going to judge and make assumptions. Same thing happened with in the, you know, a couple months ago in the height of everything with Black Lives Matter. All I'm doing is talking about this all day, all week, all month long. And I'm getting people saying, you know, don't listen to Lewis because he's a white man having black people on like, and he's not doing enough. And he's it just whatever, just making assumptions. And that's the thing. It's like, you're going to, I'm going to be judged no matter how much I care about something, no matter how good my intentions are and how much I act in a positive way on something. It doesn't matter. People aren't going to understand me. They're not going to like me. They're not going to get me. They're not, they're not going to want to listen to me or want to listen to anything that I have on uh, because it, I represent an ideal of a white man. And that ideal is something I'm going to always have to break down for the rest of my life to create connection with people. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it's a fear or if it's just a reality that you a reality that I just have to face and not let it get to me, not let it make me play small or dim my light to try to do good in the world and not my, allow people, you know, judging me. So my husband tells me, cause I, I went through this. I do. I always go through it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, they're going to say that I'm difficult or, you know, I'll, and, and there's yes. a lot of coded language for, for women of color. There's a lot <laughs> right. of Muslim women. But, and my husband would be like, well, it's none of your business what they think of you. Yeah, it's true. It's none of your business. Your business is what you do, how you show up and what your intention is. It's none of your business what they say when you're out of the room or what they think of you. And it's taken me, it's so hard to actually Very write. hard. You got a smart husband. Yeah. Oh no. I know he's brilliant. You're only saying that. It's hard though. To you. So. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> extremely hard. And as a, you know, as, as a kid who grew up with not many friends, uh, it's like, man, I want everyone to like me, you know, type of feeling. So oh, yeah. learning to continually just be like, okay, I've got friends now. My family's here. Like, even if the world is against me, I know I'm doing my best and that's, exactly. and that's what I got to live with. So I think the fear is, is that just like, no, it's just an acceptance that people are never going to fully understand me or get me and being okay with it. And being, and accepting that. Yeah. So my very last question for you before we get off is what's next? Like what's the, what's, what's, where does the school go? What's, what's your next step? What's your next plan? What's next is what's now because I, I have big visions and dreams for the future, but I, for the last few months, I've been thinking about death more than ever. And I don't know if it's cause I'm seeing it a lot more on the, the news. I don't know if it's cause I'm 37 getting closer to 40. Uh, I don't know why. But I'm, I'm thinking about it more than ever. And I just want to be a proud of myself for what I do now. Mm -hmm. I want to be proud of like every day of how I show up, how I respond, 
how I um, take action, how I, uh, you know, how I treat my own heart, how I treat other people's hearts. And so I just try to focus as much on what's now in, in realizing this is the only time I have is now. Like every night I'm like, if I don't wake up tomorrow, am I proud of what I did today in my life? Mm -hmm. And I just think about that. And my whole goal is to continue to dream big in terms of like my mission. And the whole mission is to serve 100 million people every single week to help them improve their life. We're reaching 9 million people a month right now when mm -hmm. our, on our audio and video platform. And so I have a long way to go. And it's like, how do I reverse engineer and continue to create conscious media and content to reach 100 million people a week? What does that look like? I've got to continue to, to break through. Not just to reach them, but to, ins to inspire yeah, them. To impact, impact them. Great impact, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so that's, that's the goal. What do I need to do? Who do I need to connect with? What do I need to create? What's missing from me? That's what I think about every single day. Like, what's missing from me that I need to break through? in order to get there. I love that. What's next is what's now. I absolutely love that. So Lewis Howes, thank you so much. Can you tell our community where they can find you? Yeah, I'm Lewis Howes everywhere online, lewishowes.com and the School of Greatness podcast anywhere. Listen to podcasts. All right. Thanks so much, Lewis. It was absolutely wonderful connecting. Appreciate it. Take care. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lambert. Thank you for joining us.